time around, we're going to talk to two featured Ukrainians. Uh, we have with us uh, uh, Kripka uh, and Oleksii. And I'm going to... Um, uh, the way we do it here, we don't introduce uh, our featured Ukrainians ourselves, but instead let those Ukrainians to introduce themselves the way they would like. So I'm going to ask Krika first. Can you tell us about yourself just a tiny bit so everybody else learns about uh, what you do? But first of all, how are you? Um, hi, Maxim. Thank you so much for having me on here with Valeria. Um, and Kvitka is completely fine. That's my name. Um, I'm, you know, it's a difficult question to answer every day. Um, and, and one, but at the same time, one that is uh, important to ask, I think, because since uh, the very beginning, I think there's become this, there's a kind of an inside joke almost, I think, amongst Ukrainians that how are you mm -hmm. has become a kind of a love language of its own. Um, and that, you know, asking how are we doing as a way of, you know, expressing concern and expressing appreciation for each other. So it is important to still ask it regardless of how hard it is to answer. I'm obviously like like yourself and I, like everyone on here, I imagine I'm, I'm not, you know, very much taken mm -hmm. taken aback but also not unfortunately not so much by the scenes in Kramatorsk today um, I think yeah. for every Ukrainian it's hard to see these things because you know I think I was thinking today about the fact that sorry I'm, I'm completely avoiding introducing myself right now just by answering this but um, <laughs> Don't worry. I think, Don't worry. I, think um, I was thinking today about how a lot of people abroad tend to lead their discussions about Ukraine or, or trying to figure out how I'm doing by asking me if my family is mm -hmm. safe and I think you know and today I was thinking about the fact that my family regardless of where they are in Ukraine right now um, Anything that happens to any Ukrainian concerns me as much as if it were to happen to my actual family members, because we are all a family of 40 million. Um, and every lo the loss of one Ukrainian life is, is a personal loss for all of us. Um, yeah. So that's that's in relation to how I'm doing today. But um, about myself, I'm a history and politics student at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I chose to study what I study primarily because of um, my identity, but also because of my family's experience um, at the hands of Russian colonialism, which we will be discussing today. Um, but I'm also a co-executive of a Ukrainian-led and Ukrainian-focused cultural organization called The Shadows Project, um, which was founded last year in January with... Um, uh, two other girls my age as well, uh, Katerina Buchowski and Agata Gorski. And um, the project was actually created with the aim of preserving and popularizing Ukrainian culture amongst mm -hmm. the next generation of Ukrainians. So um, very much all about bridging the kind of gaps in knowledge that um, we have encountered in peers our age due to, um, you know, the kind of unaddressed um, and not uprooted uh, remnants of um, you know, Russian imperialism. So that's a little bit about myself. And um, thank you very much for having me on today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's a great point about that. Uh, nobody knows how to answer those questions anymore. So instead, we always ask uh, our uh, guests and everyone how their loved ones are doing. Are they safe? And this is probably as good as it goes. I'm asking um, Oleksii also to 
um, uh, re uh, to accept the speaker request that I sent to, to, to him. Can you hear me now? Yeah, no worries. Yes, yep, perfect. Perfect now. Okay, I'm sorry. It's actually it's actually funny because it's the first time ever in Twitter uh, right now. So I'm sorry for any glitches that might come up. No worries at all. Um, yeah. No worries at all. Uh, thanks a lot for having so, me here. Yeah. Yeah. Tell 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 us also. You know, first of all, tell us: Are your loved ones are safe? Are you safe? And also, uh, can you introduce yourself to everyone else so we don't do it for yourself? Yeah, sure. So, uh, as for the first as for the first part, I am pretty much safe, and uh, my loved ones are safe, and uh, that's about all I can say at the moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm also, of course, uh, a bit or very much perplexed and outraged by the news, uh, basically not just of, of today, but of every day uh, over the last, over the last, uh, yeah, how many, like over the month, yeah. And uh, so um, uh, I think um, I've, like one of the ways that I've been able to cope with uh, this uh, situation of constant uh, distress is to basically kind of try to block uh, my emotions, basically kind of try to not to react in an emotional way, but rather to try and react in an analytical way. And uh, that's where my kind of uh, background from my past uh, uh, seems to be helpful, at least for me. So basically, uh, right now I'm working mostly as documentary filmmaker, I've been making documentary films uh, since around 2012-2013. That is to say, more or less since the time that uh, the Maidan uprising uh, happened in Ukraine and uh, Ukraine has been exposed uh, to kind of Russian neo-fascist imperialist colonial project at its, at its worst. And so this this has be this has informed uh, this has informed uh, very much my practice as a filmmaker, but also I occasionally mm. uh, I occasionally write. Uh, yeah, and my past background is in the academia, which I quit uh, luckily some years ago. And uh, these days I sometimes uh, write essays uh, that uh, have to do with uh, kind of cultural history and. Uh, art history, but also political history of Ukraine, Eastern Europe, Russia, and so on. Um, I have to say I'm also of, uh, how to say, uh, mixed origin. Yeah, I'm like, partly Russian, partly Jewish uh, descent, which makes me a perfect Ukrainian, I think. I've been partly <laughs> brought up in Moscow, uh, where my mother's family is from, and I'm bilingual in my everyday life. So these days I'm selling well actually. So the languages I use in my everyday life these days are Ukrainian, Russian and English. But for the better part of my life, I've been using Ukrainian and Russian on a daily basis. And this is something I'm not going to give up uh, anyhow. Yeah, so yeah. I think we're not giving kind of Russian language away to the Kremlin and to the Russians because it seems that these days they don't really know how to use it properly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so one of the uh, reasons I think I'm kind of uh, was kindly invited by Maxim to contribute to this talk is an essay that I wrote basically in the first days 
of the Russian invasion uh, in February, where I was kind of locked in a relatively safe space in Kiev, and there was not much not much I could do in that circumstances. So I started to write, and it was the essay where I tried to kind of outline, uh, um, yeah, the discrepancies of the Russian colonial project in Ukraine. And when it was published in English in early March, to my surprise, it kind of resonated a lot, it seems, to at least uh, some audiences that uh, read it, because I think it's uh, very important to frame uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine in decolonial terms. And in a way, it was yeah. a big surprise for me that for many people, especially in the West, it was a complete kind of eye-opener. I didn't expect to open any eyes because I thought it was obvious that this is uh, that we are part of the colonial struggle that's going on all over the globe. But it seems that for a lot of people uh, across the globe, it's becoming obvious just now. So I think we have to do a lot of work to make it even more obvious. Yeah, I, I think I think I also feel it because I'll, I've been trying to mainstream uh, the stories about Russian colonialism for several years now, and I'm 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 it fills fills me with joy that its topic is suddenly, after the start of genocide, started tracking, and this is actually how I came you know about Alexei's work and also Kvitka's work, exactly because for many Ukrainians it's also a bit of. Uh, you know, a bit of uh, journey. Uh, we are trying to figure out uh, um, this uh, story and looking at what what is happening to our country through colonialism lenses as well. And Alexei and Kritka are some one of my favorite voices that I discovered because of that in recent uh, days and recent weeks. Because uh, before I it felt quite isolating, uh, you know, not hearing much of it. I wanted to ask Alexei right away a question about his text, but before I really want to share my favorite quote from uh, that um, essay that he wrote, it's called The Case Against Russian Federation. Mm. So Alexei writes, um, by trying to occupy with brutal military force, its imagined imperial heartland, the Russian Federation initiated a destructive process that may lead to the gradual loss of many more regions and peoples that still subjected to its colonial rule. Of course, Ukrainians will fight against Russian imperialist frenzy by any means whatsoever, but merely fighting back is not enough. The growing anti-colonial struggle of the indigenous peoples of the Russian Federation should also become uh, the focus of global anti-war movement. To start with, I suggest that Kiev accepts its thousand-year-old historical responsibility towards the colonized nations oppressed in today's Russian Federation by belatedly acknowledging itself as the unfortunate origin of a despotic, colonialist Russian state, a state that oppresses every people with the misfortune of being with its territory, including the Russian people. I mean, this text is really amazing how you frame the question, you know, basically the, the, the case for dismembering Russian Federation for the sake of humanity, but also as a, probably one of the largest decolonizing projects that, you know, humanity could ever see. How how you came about this focus in the first place? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks a lot for quoting me at such length. And actually, I have to say that this particular part, the ending of this text, was meant as a bit of a provocation uh, towards uh, the readers. 
Yeah, and uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, I have to elaborate a little bit on this because I really don't want uh, myself to sound like Ukrainian imperialist or something like that. And um, I think that, uh, of course, uh, to start with, uh, contemporary Ukraine and contemporary Russia do not have a very long shared history, right? Their shared history dates back to just 350 years or something like that. But in this essay, I've been trying to deconstruct the myths yeah, that actually link the history of contemporary Russia and contemporary Ukraine to this kind of semi-mythical uh, medieval entity referred to as Kiev and Rus, yeah? Mm. The Kievska Rus, yeah, that is kind of a, a foundational myth of uh, kind of both contemporary Russia and contemporary Ukraine. So I think that... Um, Unfortunately, uh, like these days, uh, we're still going to live under the spell of uh, this kind of historical mythical thinking. So one productive way to move forward would be to subvert those myths and reclaim them uh, maybe for the sake of uh, decolonial struggle. So Mm -hmm. uh, the foundational myth of Russian Federation says basically that Kiev is the mother of Russian cities, right? That because Kiev was the capital of this semi-mythical medieval state uh, before Moscow even was founded, then it kind of allows them to lay claim on on Kiev um, as uh, as a city that has to be reoccupied and reconnected to Russia. But if you take this myth really seriously, in a way, then it's clear that uh, uh, what we now refer to as the Russian Federation, or basically every iteration of the Russian state, could be seen as a kind of a bastard of this really unfortunate uh, colonial process of the eastward expansion of Eastern Slavs that mm. historically so started you're in Kiev. Yeah, you basically yeah. flip it, right? That's the same narrative that they use. Yeah, I'm trying to flip it, and I'm also trying to make a case for uh, understanding this eastward expansion of Eastern Slavs uh, around uh, kind of 9th, 10th century AD as a case of uh, settler colonialism. Yeah, and uh, I also have to make a disclaimer here that I'm not really a professional historian even though I have a kind of master's degree in cultural studies and I know something about history, but uh, this particular essay is meant as a provocation. I'm really glad and surprised that professional um, historians uh, did not kind of diss this essay, to my knowledge. Um, But um, I uh, uh, kind of really hope that this perspective of of, um, settler colonialism from Kiev eastwards uh, that led to the foundation of medieval kind of Muscovite and Russian states can actually be a legitimate perspective on the origins of Russian history. And I hope maybe Kvitka or others uh, have kind of more um, to add here. First of all, I... Alexey, I also wanted to say, I think it's also time for us Ukrainians to stop apologizing for expressing our thoughts and opinions and theories and 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 research and and whatnot, because I think we've been 
so quiet for such a long time that it's finally okay for us to express ourselves however however we feel like um and it's i maxim gave me homework before our session with with both you and Kvitka, and it was absolutely a fascinating read um, and super thoroughly put together. But I also had a question to Kvitka. First of all, similarly to you, I studied in Scotland as well, uh, similarly driven by the same um, sort of, you know, backgrounds and, and what was happening at the time in Ukraine. But you've done a lot as well on on the same issue of, of sort of Russian imperialism, Russian colonialism, yeah. and you've written a really amazing thread from your personal experience of growing up in 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 russia um as a kid and seeing yeah. everything around you so we also were wondering sort of what made you take this approach um now in your sort of adulthood and as you study um abroad as well yeah of course um well actually the the thread came about as a result of participating in a panel discussion in my university um and it was actually quite a surprise that the discussion took place in, in the first place, really, because out of the three years of my sort of academic career here, um, and despite, you know, my degree being housed under the history department, I actually have never had any mandatory um, sort of exposure to Eastern European history at all. Um, and that has been something that has been very sort of, you know, very, very apparent and very clear to me um, in that there's a very there's a huge lack of of just educational resources in general even if if anyone was keen to you know learn more about russian colonialism and whatnot in western institutions there's simply even on an academic level there still is a lack of just resources at a very basic level but um the thread came about because the discussion actually featured a professor from my university who um did a, a small lecture on mundane militarism and the ways in which um, basically what she was talking about was the ways in which a kind of a militarized, um, in essentially how, how militarized the upbringing of, you know, an average Russian is. And she was yeah. talking about the kind of subconscious manifestations of militarism in, in Russia in terms of, you know, uh, pictures of playgrounds, which are shaped, you know, as as tanks and as, um, you know, sort of like weapons lying around for children to play with, um, yeah. a kind of, you know, very early on um, introductions to, uh, you know, concepts of the great patriotic war and whatnot, and the sort of ways in which uh, historical events, and, and such as World War II, are, you know, promoted as parts of Russian culture and Russian history, and the ways in which they're named as well, which has a huge influence in how you perceive the world in that part of history specifically. Um, and it actually, it was only that lecture that made me remember the experiences that I have had that I think I kind of have blocked out of my mind, where I didn't necessarily... Um, process them as a kind of manifestation of that mundane militarism that she was talking about. Um, and when I looked back at it, you know, I lived in Russia for three years. And of those three, um, I spent one year um, in a Russian public school when I was six years old. Um, that was an experience that I had put out on Twitter and in, in a thread, essentially just talking about the kinds of things I was taught and I was and I was made to do. Um, and, you know, for those that haven't read the thread on that might be joining us today, I guess I can summarize it very briefly. Um, I think the, the big the attention that I had paid and, and what I wrote was um, mostly concerning the ways in which World War II is brought about um, in Russian schooling. Um, and the ways in which it is taught is that it started in 1941, not in 1939. I actually was probably maybe around 
um, I want to say 10 years old when I found out that World War II started two years earlier than I was taught. Um, it's called the Great Patriotic War, and um, it is celebrated as it, or, or it's promoted as something to be celebrated. You know, May 9th is, a, is Victory Day. Um, that's uh, always sort of accompanied by a huge yeah. victory parade. Obviously, you know, you see scenes from the Red Square in Moscow. It's very much a, a glorified, a celebratory kind of um, nature of an event, where as opposed to it being something where in Europe on May 8th, is it's a day of remembrance and reconciliation. And for Ukrainians as well, you know, for us, the end of World War II was essentially just the replacement of one occupation with another. Um so, you know, I was basically just highlighting those things, but also the fact that, you know, when I was six years old, I was made to, you know, stand in front of a, a kind of a, um, a, a like a, a list of soldiers of the Red Army that were graduates of my Russian school. And I had to stand in front of it for an hour and think about the things that they have done and how they liberated the quote unquote motherland without knowing at the time that those same soldiers were the ones that, you know, were part of a greater system that, you know, came to my great grandparents home in the middle of the night and separated my family apart, sent them to the Russian Far East for um, spreading Ukrainian ideals. So, um, you know, what I wanted to stress was that this whole culture of, you know, to bring it back to what we're talking about today, this whole culture of Russian colonialism is very much um, present everywhere. It's not just it's not just the sort of apparent manifestations such as the letter that Putin wrote about, you know, the alleged brotherhood of Ukrainians and Russians. It's in everyday education. It's in everyday life. It's in the connection between the Russian state and the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and it is something that, you know, Talking about it sometimes as Ukrainian is quite frustrating because it seems sometimes I think about the fact that Europe right now is discovering something that feels like it's been very much apparent to every Ukrainian since the moment yeah. you're born. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. And it's something that, you know, we routinely have been talking about for years. Um, in, and, you know, I think Ukrainians a lot of the time, or at least I have this feeling that, you know, to be to be Ukrainian is to be politicized from the moment you're born, really, um, and to have to justify your your existence. And that's how I felt for the majority of my life. But it all obviously comes under the sort of larger feeling of um, I wish we didn't. It, I wish it didn't have to get to this point for us to be talking about it yeah it only took a, a war and, and bombing and you know massive yeah. civilian casualties for the world to start paying attention yeah but i also wanted to say that your third is also um really important in highlighting why so many of us ukrainians are like petrified about what's going to happen before may 9th because there's exactly. such like an ideological yeah. sort of backdrop to it right like yeah actually we, yeah. you know sorry just to you raise a really good point because actually you know, um, obviously the full-scale invasion started on February 24th. I distinctly remember having uh, my mom calling me on February 23rd, so just a day after the recognition of um, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics by Russia as legitimate. Um, I remember having a conversation with my mom a day before they started bombing everywhere, and she said, you know, I think they're going to start something tomorrow because today they're too busy celebrating. Um so that is, I think, very much the kind of sentiment we're coming back to now when May 9th is going to be coming up. Yeah, and uh, actually, um, you know, this is why I love 
your story and Oluxi's story so much because we're not, you know, professional historians, but we came into understanding and uh, awareness of Russian colonialism through our personal stories, you know, and the one thing that I always repeat when you grow up in Ukraine as a Ukrainian, for many kind of trying to reconnect with your roots, it's always a labor. So for yeah. many people in other countries, just, you know, they're born into their countries and they're taught their history at schools and through family family uh, stories as well. And they just naturally become part of the societies and grow yeah. accustomed to their history. When in fact, when you're born in Ukraine, a lot of, you have more questions. You always yeah. have questions. Your family is not able to answer them because a lot of truths are being hidden because of, uh, you know, so many of our generations been repressed, scared, um, yeah. you know, killed, slaughtered through genocide, a lot of loss. And the same goes to discourse and what we teach in schools, which has yeah. been, you know, as with the victory parade has been stolen and reappropriated by Russians and, you know, into some weird narratives that have no connection to our real uh, mm -hmm. histories. I wanted to ask you about this um, and also Oluxi, um, if can you, can you maybe just a bit elaborate um, on the question that we love to ask everyone? Um, while we connected and we tried to connect the dots about what happened to our country and the role of Russian colonialism at play, um, have you had any epiphanies about what it means to be Ukrainian, especially in these weird circumstances of coming in age in uh, Fort Kvitka in in different country in a country colon, colonize, uh, colonizer, uh, colonizer, and for Oluxi being of mixed background? So mm -hmm. I'll probably ask Oluxi first, and then uh, Kvitka, you as well. Yeah, uh, sure. Um... Thanks for asking this question, and uh, I think that um, even though I'm not sure I have any epiphanies, but one of the one of the directions that I think that, uh, that one of the perspectives that I, sh I think should be included into this conversation about colonialism is actually the relationship between colonialism and fascism. Right? It seems that, and I think that uh, it's a really good it's a really good uh, starting point to also continue the conversation on the Second World War and its ideology, because it seems that um, these days Ukraine on the territory of Ukraine uh, we are fighting fascism for the second time in basically what uh, seventy years, uh, just with the difference that it's not uh, German fascism. Yeah, it's not. Uh, kind of European origin, uh, German kind of Nazi ideology that is invading Ukraine, but it is kind of Russian uh, kind of Nazi ideology that is behind, uh, that is behind uh, this war and that is behind the Russian colonial project in Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, we should uh, kind of really stress that any colonial project, when it's when taken to its extreme or when it is allowed to develop this extreme is basically a fascist project yeah and it's it's not um uh it's not a very kind of complex uh thing to link um the uh the practice or 
yeah, so to say, the ideology of genocide as uh, something that originated actually in the colonial practices of European big powers uh, that were originally held in the colonized lands of uh, Africa, right? And Absolutely. were afterwards, afterwards kind of re-exported back into Europe, yeah? So um, I think, uh, I mean, there's so much to say about, uh, about Russian fascism or like neo-fascism as the ultimate, as, as the ultimate iteration of Russian colonialism. But I think the developments of uh, this week, uh, when basically the Russian state media uh, started to openly declare uh, their kind of need uh, to genocide Ukrainian assassination, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, which happened actually after. Uh, the evidence and the overwhelming evidence of the practice of uh, genocide of Ukrainians in the occupied uh, territories came to light. I think that here, um, by uh, kind of uh, making explicit uh, these ideas and by making explicit the neo-fascist nature of the Russian state, which has been obvious for many of us here in Ukraine for a very long time, I think it's very important that this situation kind of breaks a certain taboo uh, yeah. in the West, yeah? Uh, because I know that a lot of people in the West, especially in Germany, are very uh, reluctant to call Putin a Nazi and to accept uh, that Russian Federation is actually effectively a neo-fascist state these days, yeah? yeah? And I think this is really dangerous and really annoying. It seems that the Germans uh, still feel entitled to, to be able to kind of exclusively say what is so-called so real uh, Nazism and what is not because of their own kind of history. And uh, yeah. this kind of sense of exclusivity uh, and the fact that uh, the Russians do not have, have their own gas chambers, but they already have their mobile crematoriums, I think... Uh, this indecision on the part of uh, basically the, the Germans and uh, other European uh, nations as well is really kind of uh, leading to a complete disaster. I think it should be openly said uh, and accepted yeah. on the level of yeah of the uh, basically also kind of of uh, politicians and decision makers that uh, yes, Russia is fascist and this also means that another important taboo should be broken that is uh, we should openly start to think about um, the future of of Russia I don't know Russian Federation or whatever kind of remains of the Russian Federation after its fascist stage yeah I think um, it is an important taboo yeah. to be broken yeah Absolutely. And I think like you mentioned, you were a person of Jewish descent as well and Ukrainians who lived through another genocide. It's, it's quite frustrating because when we see genocide happening, we know when we see it, right? And for people who haven't lived uh, through genocide, it's, uh, it's quite weird to, to lecture us on what is genocide and what is not. Um, and uh, um, yeah, thanks, Alexey. I think uh, one of the things that I uh, posted uh, just uh, some days ago were echoing and inspired by your work saying that the ultimate peace plan for Ukraine is dismembering of Russian Federation 
and stripping it of all the weapons. So, yeah, that's uh, probably something that many find very radical, but looking through the history of Russian colonialism dating back 350 years, one thing happening over and over again, this looks like the only solution that will definitely work. Uh, and Miska, can I? Oh, sorry. Yeah, just to quickly more. add, and it's so important what Oleksiy just said earlier, like there are so many people of different ethnicities living in Russia and, you know, different backgrounds and so on. And I would even say it's not just dismembering of Russia and division of Russia, it, you know, the way, one way I would put it as well as the liberation of all the people living under occupation and sort of oppression f from the Russian Empire for such a long time um, as well. But yeah, Kvitka, please. Yeah, what, what it means for you, yeah. uh, what Ukraine means for you and being Ukrainian, was it also a kind of, a, you know, a journey, a choice that you made um, or uh, whatnot? Tell us, you know, share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting question you're asking about an epiphany, because on the one hand, I feel like, like I've said before, everything we're seeing right now, we've, you know, Ukrainians have seen before, like, it, it's not the the horrors are obviously unimaginable, but they're not entirely new to us. Um, it's just that there's more subject to change in terms of the kind of technology that Russia has at its hands today. But at the same time, the kind of I guess epiphanies you could call it I've had are more sort of more obvious ones that have just, you know, appeared as very, um, I suppose, concentrated thoughts in my mind every now and again. The first one being that I am, you know, the fourth generation of my family who is, you know, sort of experiencing some form of um, Russian colonialism or is living in the time when, you know, it's kind of showing itself to the world at its worst. My, my great-grandmother was sent to the Russian Far East. My grandfather basically spent his formative, the formative years of his life on a forced labor camp in the Far East of Russia. Um, my mom has told me stories of, you know, having to uh, celebrate Christmas with the curtains drawn shut so that the neighbors don't see that they're celebrating Christmas because that wasn't allowed and, and you could be punished for that. Um, you know, and then I've, you know, I'm 21 and I've grown up, I've lived through two revolutions and a war. Um, and so for me, there's been a kind of a realization of, you know, it, it feels obvious and I've known this my whole life, but, and yet kind of having a very distinct realization of the fact that this has been going on for so incredibly long that I'm just yet another generation of the same family. Um, suffering at the hands of, you know, the, the very same imperialist project um, feels, you know, I think maybe per I've, I feel like that's, this is something that a lot of the Western audiences don't understand is that we're frankly exhausted, but also we're not entirely surprised. And yet again, we've tried to speak, talk about this for years and it took for, for massacres to take, yeah, you know, and, and it took, and it took for massacres to take place for, um, some kind of attention to be paid to us. And then, so then, you know, on the one hand, there's a frustration that it had to get to this point for the world to understand the depth of the kind of maniacal, centuries-long, entrenched hatred that Ukraine has been subject to at the hands of Russian colonialism and just the general Russian desire for power. On the other hand, 
this isn't the first time that this, again, maniacal centuries-long hatred for Ukraine has manifested itself in the most unimaginable violence. I mean, the Soviet regime murdered between 3 to 10 million Ukrainians with a man-made famine in 1932. And then again, on the other hand, even this outright explicit and you know, absolutely intentional demonstration of hatred that we're witnessing daily, you know, Bucha, Irpin, Kramatorsk, Mariupol, you name it, it's it still is not enough for some people to understand the sheer scale of it all. Because there are still people saying it's on NATO and there are still people saying it's on the West and that they've provoked Russia. But what needs to be understood, and I think perhaps this is the, the epiphany that I've had, even though it still feels like a very obvious one to have, is that this doesn't end with the end of Putin. Um, what is yes. at stake, yes. and, and it very much feels to me as this, as if this is the kind of the defining moment and our last opportunity to end it once and for all, is that what is at stake is the complete uprooting of any and all remnants of Russian colonialism in all its forms. And because, you know, this isn't Putin's war, and I'm so tired of fighting anyone on this at this point. There was no Putin in Bucha, there, and Putin didn't personally send missiles at people in Kramatorsk today. And I know that this comes from the convenience of blaming individuals. Obviously, it's easier to remove one person or put the blame on one person than to understand that the scale of what you're dealing with is a vast, vast majority of 140 million people whose lives have entirely been shaped and formed by these centuries-long campaigns of hatred and destruction and oppression that I've mentioned earlier. So, you know, point being, we have a lot of work ahead of us and it will not end with, you know, the day when Ukraine inevitably wins and victory is proclaimed and all of Ukraine is ours, because then another round of work begins. And that is, you know, pretty much decolonizing Russia itself. And what needs to be remembered is for us within, in, and this is what we're doing today with the fact that we're still having this conversation, despite the fact that today Ukraine has witnessed yet another massacre, is that our current existence as Ukrainians is already evidence of centuries long resistance. Um, and being Ukrainian alone right now and just existing as a Ukrainian is already a form of victory over ancestors. You know, I'm happy that you also brought Kritka the parallels with, uh, you know, with the uh, with Russians and this being Russians' war because you left uh, in Russia. I also lived in Russia. We uh, experienced that ingrained um, colonial attitude, uh, casual domestic attitude towards Ukrainians that you basically can feel at any given moment if you're Ukrainian in in Russia. This is so pervasive. And the uh, racial slurs that to use, um, you know, casually with the LOL attitude. But also, you know, um, I wanted to ask you a quick question on um, on the responsibility and the conversation within the Russian society that hasn't started about the colonial legacy. Because I talked to yes. some German friends, and Alexei also mentioned our greatest frustration with Germany trying to block and trying to interfere with uh, global solidarity for Ukraine. But also some Germans understand and they say like, well, you subjected, meaning the West, subjected to Germany for decades of uh, 
you know, thinking about the responsibility and atoning for the sins done during the Nazi regimes. Decades of the West asking from Germans every day to say, I'm sorry, yeah. and live in this uh, guilt for decades. And that guilt became part of the German identity by now. Yeah. So why in the hell Russians are not asked to go through the same process in, in, is despite that this process much longer and has a much longer list of atrocities and genocides. So my question to you, Kvitka, mm -hmm. why do you think that Russian colonialism, despite existing for hundreds of years, done so many genocides, killing so many people, stayed in plain hide from uh, absolutely everyone in the West and for people who still um, not obvious that Russia is the last uh, standing uh, colonial empire, at least of the 19th century kind of style, uh, pillage, robbery, and rape. Yeah, um, on it, honestly, it's quite a it's quite a difficult question. I think one that even regardless of how much research you do about it, you will still ponder about it in terms of just on a moral level. How 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 has Russia managed to maintain this kind of a profile for so long with absolutely nothing being done about it? I think, I suppose, I would theorize that my answer would be twofold in that on the one hand, Russia has done a hell of a good job of sort of portraying its kind of colonialism as something that either had to be done or something that is not entirely, is not colonialism. You know, I actually, I, I looked up just out of for like my interest sake i looked up russian colonialism prior to this conversation because i wanted to see what kind of discourse was there in the first place just if you were to generally try to look into it on the web um and funnily enough actually the first thing that comes up is the russian colonization of north america um and talking about the period of time when russia very briefly laid claim to the northern pacific coast territories in the americas and then everything that follows after that are articles that question whether Russia was a colonial empire. And there's even an article on how Russia colonized itself. So even any potential conversations about Russian colonialism have already been, they've been completely littered with kind of um, the questioning of the general theory and the applicability of colonial framework to it, which I think has made any and all conversations sort of either um, you know, it's completely derailed any possibility of this conversation taking place in the first place, because we're not talking about the actual metrics of Russian colonialism. We're talking about what, what does it even count what Russia's done as colonialism? And I would argue that absolutely yes, because on the one hand, you look at the definition of colonialism at, as it is. It is, you know, the practice of, of acquiring full or partial political control over a territory, occupying it very much often imposing a certain ideology of religion, a language. Ukraine has, you know, experienced it all. So I often think yeah. about the fact that if, and I've experienced this in academia as well, in studying history and even throughout high school as well, that it seems that um, the Russian empire and Russian imperialism never gets the same kind of treatment as every other empire ever studied. Um, I feel like there's, and, and there's slight conversations starting about it now, um, and I can give a personal anecdote about this 
which I think could be potentially the reason as to why they've succeeded to kind of maintain this presence for so long. Um, I spoke with a Russian classmate of mine once a couple of years back where she was criticizing Putin and saying that, you know, what he's done to Russia is so horrible. I wish we could bring back the times of the Russian Empire because that's when we were at the top of our greatness. And when I asked her, what did she mean by that? Because in my head as a Ukrainian, I'm thinking about Catherine the Great, about the destruction of Cossacks, about the banning of the Ukrainian language. Um, you know, but hundreds of years of repressions against Ukrainians, she started talking about culture. And I think that for some reason, we Russia has been quite successful at equating its sort of politics with cultural achievements or cultural contributions. And that is something that we're also seeing a lot of efforts towards. And this is what I'm also trying to contribute to is essentially decolonizing um, culture and and understanding that um any Russian output in terms of not just politics, but any social or cultural output of Russia is still done under the guise of a colonial framework. And, you know, I think the reason why perhaps the West has not been able to separate itself from Russia is because they are thinking of Russian ballet, of Russian literature, of Tolstoy, um, but they're also completely ignoring the fact that, you know, Russian ballet completely... Um, annihilated the existence of Ukrainian theater under the Russian Empire. They're not thinking about the fact that the very much loved Tolstoy had 1,500 kreposneya um, of Ukrainian serfs. Um, and that potentially is one of the reasons. Another reason could easily be the fact that the West is very much still in, has very deeply entrenched relations with Russia on um, a level, in, you know, in terms of just politics and and um money yeah. it's always about the We've money seen it really. now haven't you know, the amount of money <laughs> oligarchs yeah the oh, amount wait. of russian oligarchs that have been able to you know take cover in the uk for such a long period of time the fact that it took for russia for putin to make an insane speech on february 21st for germany to withdraw its certification of Nord stream 2 when we had been talking about it for years and calling on its cancel uh, cancellation for years um it's yeah, just, and the wealth that they amassed yeah. and they spent on uh you know re on the hiding these conversations or uh, exactly. marginalize these conversations, that wealth is also yeah. uh, is built on uh, uh, colonial um, colonial conquest. So where all the Russian oil comes from, from exactly. lands that did not do not belong to ethnic Russians in Siberia that suffered from centuries of settler colonialism, exterminating so many indigenous nations as the Russians were uh, trying to pillage the region of, and st still are pillaging the region of uh, natural resources. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Valeria, uh, uh, I know you also had a question. Yeah, um, and I also wanted to just add, um, I guess what to Kvitko was saying that, you know, I think people think or say that it's or or it's convenient for a lot of people to think that Putin is the only problem because I think a lot of people find it comforting to think that there's one bad apple as opposed to start questioning sort of you know what has led to the situation that we're in now but my question to Oleksii and sort of um in relation to the 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 text that you were talking about earlier I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um you know there's a lot that we've discussed about history today. There's a lot that we've discussed about culture today. But I wanted to ask you, why do you think Russia is Russian colonial project, Russian imperial project is so obsessed with Ukraine and needs Ukraine so desperately? 
Yeah, um, I'll try to answer this by also kind of kind of retroactively adding something to the previous question of why Russian colonialism has been so successful in concealing basically the fact that it's colonial. And I think the answer to that, like one of the answers to that is that Ukraine is actually, uh, for better or worse, not just the victim of Russian colonialism, but also in a way its kind of source. Yeah, I think we should also accept that uh, Ukraine uh, had contributed um, to this kind of core colonial project for such a long time and not just as part of this uh, uh, kind of uh, medieval history of uh, Kiev and Rus when uh, kind of Kiev was to the um, to the colonial uh, pillage of Eastern Europe was like London like was to the colonial Village of Americas, yeah. So uh, this all started in Kiev, and uh, and th and uh, this is why I think um, this uh, kind of really insane and suicidal and Russian idea of conquering Ukraine by brute force is uh, kind of made um, kind of makes at least some sense to me. Uh, the, insane as it is, but I think, uh, uh, strangely, these people realize that without Ukraine, the Russian Federation will not be able to exist anymore as well. Without Ukraine, uh, there would be no Russia as an empire. And this is maybe like one thing that I can ever agree with uh, these people. It's just the difference is they think it's really bad and I think it's really good. So uh, the independence <laughs> of Ukraine is basically is basically the biggest reason why Russian Federation has no future, um, and uh, I, this is the only kind, kind of at least distantly rational explanation that I can find for this insane invasion, which has also which is in fact uh, a suicide. Yeah, it's really a suicidal mission by Putin and the Russian Federation, not necessarily because. Uh, Ukrainian army will kind of heroically liberate uh, all the indigenous peoples of Russia after liberating Ukraine, but but because uh, by kind of doing this, they really started this really destructive process, and and the moment this invasion failed, and it failed on kind of it's day one, as we now know. So the moment it failed, um, it kind of became clear that. Uh, the Russian Federation is really doomed. Without Ukraine, there will be no Russian Federation, and these people know it. Thank you yeah. so much. I, it fills me with so much joy, this conversation. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up, but uh, literally, this is the reason why we do it. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm really, I really regret that I haven't met you, all of you, and uh, Oleksiy and Kritka before. And as Kvitka said, unfortunate circumstances, why we talk about this while our cities and our country is being genocided. And this is a very dark background. However, this is exactly the reason why they're doing it. Because these conversations that we're having is a, they're paving the way for the collapse of this empire. While each and every Ukrainian comes in terms of colonialism that has been done to our country. 
um, where by doing so, we're also paving the way for this empire to finally fucking die. Yes. And this is something that absolutely, <laughs> yeah, with, and thanks to these brilliant voices that we have, Oluxi, Kvitka, young, fresh, um, super smart. Um, I'm so thankful for you to join us today. And uh, also want to super encourage to follow their work. Uh, Oluxi is not prolific on Twitter. He's a very lucky man. He doesn't have to do sometimes with all the shit happening here. So you can follow him on Instagram, but also just Google him. His work is so extensive. And the same for Kvitka. Um, also, guys, if you want to plug something in, like many other uh, platforms or where to follow you, please do uh, right now. Um, we're happy to amplify whatever you feel appropriate. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving us both the platform to speak about our experiences here. I think generally, you know, these kinds of spaces, like you said, is with every with every conversation like this, a little bit more of decolonization is taking place. Um, but yeah, in terms of plugging, I also would like to encourage if anyone is active on Instagram to follow Shadows Project on there. We do a lot of sort of decolonization efforts um, aimed at young people in Ukraine, but also trying to educate foreigners more about Ukrainian history and culture in unique ways. So, um, yeah. But thank you very much to you, to you both, to you and, and Val. Alexey, yeah, uh, thank you. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. Um, and I actually, I have to say, I will now consider not uh, deleting this Twitter account uh, immediately after the conversation, as I planned. So uh, we'll see how it goes, uh, and maybe you can add me here. But also for those of you who are on Telegram, I um, I have a channel on Telegram where I used to normally write about uh, documentary film and my film projects, but these days I write mostly on decolonialism, and it's called Kinotron, the first letter is K, uh, so Kinotron, and uh, uh, it's in Ukrainian and Russian, so for those of you who read these languages, you can add me there. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much for this. And just to say to everyone in our audience, once again, a reminder, the reason that you probably at some point uh, you haven't heard about Russian imperialism, colonialism as much as you are now is because a lot of people were not listening to Ukrainian voices. So I just encourage everyone before we wrap up um, and say goodbye to listen to Ukrainian voices like the people that you've heard today to share their stories, share their work and to as much as possible um, sort of uplift um, their platforms and what they're doing. So really thankful to everyone who's joined. Um, that's already part of supporting Ukrainian voices. And we will see you next time with Maxim. Thank you so much once again. Uh, see you soon next week. Uh, meanwhile, Slava Ukraini. Hello, I'm Slava. Thank Bye, you. guys.